This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. My first guest for the morning has joined us in the studio to talk about a new project called Arts Log, on which artists are being invited to anonymously log their working conditions and the pay they receive in order to highlight and address some of the ongoing inequities in the art world. I'm joined by Gabrielle Vietri. Hi, Richard. Now, um, uh, your colleague Nina Ross was going to join us, but unfortunately can't, not to worry, but uh, I'm sure you can do the talking. The pressures as an artist are are multiple. Well, yes, including kind of parenting, working and as you've, uh, as we've established, kind of talking about inequity in the sector. Now, mm. yesterday, uh, and there was a great article in The Age which is based on the new platform paper published by Currency Press, mm. which is talking about the fact that performers really do suffer for their art, talking mm. about depression, poverty, and even the lack of dental care mm. uh, and the fact that kind of the average performer's income is maybe 30 grand. So that's yeah. in the performance world, but yeah. the visual art world, not much better. I think that an interview, um, sorry, a report published by the Australian Council estimated artists' income as seven grand a year uh, on average, which is far below the kind of poverty line. Um, and and as you say, with this um, platform paper, the uh, it's a it's a broader picture of kind of. Um, public amenities, including dental care and including investment in culture, just declining and declining. Um, and, yeah, the primary producers, the artists, are really um, kind of picking up the, the slack. It, I mean, if artists were charging for the actual amount of work they did, no mm. one would be able to afford to go to the theatre, uh, go to a, a gallery, uh there's an enormous inequity and yet the gallerists and the people working in the uh, as uh, arts administrators are mm. kind of often doing well but let's kind of focus in on specifically on arts log which is a new online database in which artists are being asked to detail their experiences their exploitative experiences of working in the art sector. Tell us more. Well, um, it's both exploitative experiences and we're also looking for good experiences because it's not just about complaining, um, but it's also about celebrating when we are, when our work is valued um, and when we are paid an appropriate or a more than appropriate amount so that we can understand what the benchmarks are um, and what we're aiming for and, and and, and show that there are some institutions and companies and um, curators out there who are, um, who are doing the right thing and, and paying artists and valuing their work properly. Um, yeah, so it's, Artslog has come out of a, a collective based in Nam, um, a small collective of artists, and we kind of got sick of just complaining to each other about um, being asked to work time and time again for free, about having to spend all of our grant money on materials and and um, p- not paying ourselves anything at all um, or even being out of pocket in the end um, and kind of just really subsidising the arts it, to exist. Like we, we, we actually are kind of in a, a somewhat privileged position to be able to have done this up until now, but it's not sustainable for anyone. 
Now, you say that's a, a collective of artists. Is that mm. the Artists Committee or is this a different collective? Because the Artists uh, Committee was a, uh, a group who, amongst other things, highlighted uh, the fact that security at the NGV were also the same security who were whose company was involved with the mandatory detention of refugees in the, the so-called Pacific Solution, for example. Is this a yeah. different collective? It's actually a subcommittee of the Artists Committee. So we call ourselves the Artists Subcommittee. It's um, because it's, of course, not the main um, concern or focus of the Artists Committee, which is um, which has been working on kind of broader social um, issues. This is one that um, is of course, focused on um, artists' working conditions. So it's a it's a slightly, it's a sidestep from the Artists' Committee, which is why we've called ourselves the Artists' Subcommittee. Which makes perfect sense. Yeah. And also given that the Artists' Committee have been successful in their campaign with the NGV, who've mm. kind of divested themselves of the uh, security company in question, um, hopefully then this campaign will also be successful in highlighting, as you say, the good and the bad of Absolutely. working as an artist. Can you mm. give us some examples, kind of, Gabrielle, of the kind of stories that are already being registered at www.artslog.com? Well, since it was launched last week, we've had stories coming in faster than we can... Um, deal with which is which is kind of great and depressing at the same time um, on the bad side we have stories of um, in artist interns running the gallery um, having absolutely no paid staff on on board we have um, people who say artist fees barely cover the cost of transporting the work um, we have uh, stories of uh, a non-binary artist of colour being asked to talk about um, diversity at a university for free. Um, so uh, just very familiar stories time and time again in slightly different configurations of being artists being asked to um, to kind of use their skills and expertise for absolutely no or very little remuneration. I've noticed having looked at the site, for example, that some of the things that are, are being offered is, oh, we'll give you a gift voucher mm. for your work, for example, or uh, the, the old classic, oh, we, we'd love to publish your art on this kind of Christmas card. You won't get paid, but you'll get great exposure. Did you read that from the thing or are you just using that as an example? No, because I've that's been, one of the examples. Yeah, I've been yeah. looking at the site. Yeah, so um, that was a, a particular West Australian premier who, who um, yeah, got artists to contribute their watercolours for nothing. Um, yeah, so it's those stories are, and, oh, the worst one is the... Um, that there'll be great wine and platters. We can't pay you, but there'll be food as though, you know, that, as though they acknowledge how starving artists are. But, <laughs> but aren't going to give them money to go out and buy food of yeah, their own. Yeah. yeah. Um, and But then on the good side, there is um, a story of somebody receiving a very generous artist fee and materials budget for a public artwork at, um, for the Townsville City Council. There's an artist being paid um, a very generous um, loan fee to participate in an exhibition overseas. An Australian artist getting a um, thousand euros artist fee for an existing work to be part of a sh group show, which is great. Um, yeah, so there are, there are stories where artists have felt like they've been appropriately remunerated and it's good to kind of see, compare where those benchmarks are. Gabrielle, what's the artist subcommittee hoping to achieve with this work beyond just highlighting some of the existing inequities mm. in the visual arts sector and perhaps exposing those inequities to a wider audience? Because mm. obviously everybody working in the arts knows about some of these mm. issues. But beyond highlighting them, what's the hope? What's the, the campaign want to achieve? Well, we hope that it will put pressure on institutions to do better because while the artists are anonymous, they can name the institutions that they have 
um, worked with. They can also not name the institution and just give it a kind of general picture. Um, so we hope that it will put pressure on institutions to consider what they're what they're paying and see how they can perhaps program down to be able to treat artists more fairly. Because I noticed that one of the the, the the stories on the site is somebody saying they quoted the what is considered the award rate for work set by NAVA, the National Association of the Visual Arts, mm. and that was rejected as because it was, oh, you've, you've priced yourself too high. Yeah. If the award rate is too high, there is something seriously wrong. She quoted that and then put in approximately 60% of her wage in kind and it was still too high. So it was it was forty percent of the of the award rate that is recommended by the National Association for the Visual Arts. So um, our funding agencies need to get up to date with that. And our and also there are certain things that funding agencies, especially councils, I know do because they want to fund more projects and they want to encourage more artists to be um, producing work. Um, is that they ask what the minimum amount. Um, needs to be for this grant for it to happen. And so they fund the minimum amount over a lot of grants instead of funding fewer grants generously. And so everyone across those those grants that get funded have to produce this project, but for very little. And so there's kind of this push and pull, which um, sometimes has undesired, undesired effects. Um, yeah, so, so we hope that our, um, institutions will do better, but also what we really hope is that it will start to unite us as a community of artists because right now we're working in very precarious p positions. We're kind of the, um, yeah, we're, we, we are the shining stars of the gig, gig economy. We um, compete against each other, not by our own choice, but by the fact that um, funding is more like buying a, you know, a lottery ticket, um, that we're, um, that we get opportunities through prize money, um, that we have to negotiate our working conditions on a one-to-one -one basis and often we um, will accept working conditions because we're scared not to get another opportunity. So we need to come together and kind of discuss that and figure out a way that we can collectively um, say no to exploitative opportunities. Um, and, and yeah, I think that that's a conversation that's yet to be had about what we can do collectively. It sounds like you're hoping for an artist's union. Perhaps. And I think that NAVA is definitely doing really amazing things at the moment to play the role of a union, even though they're not a union. They're looking at ways um, to legislate artists' working conditions. Um, and I'm really looking forward to being part of that conversation. And I think that having a push from the ground up is a really important part of that picture. So from, from the kind of organisational point of view, um, I think NAVA is going to be making some really important steps, but I also think there needs to be um, collective action from the industry's primary producers, the artists, because without us, uh, if we say no, this industry doesn't exist. I guess a devil's advocate question for you. Some people will say, well, why keep working in the arts if the conditions <laughs> are so bad? Uh, aren't you bringing this on yourself by staying in this sector mm. rather than moving on to somewhere, I don't know, less exploitative and more profitable? Yeah, it's a good question. And um, I think a lot of artists have asked themselves the same question and left the industry. And I think what we're seeing, especially since the um, the cuts the, from the federal funding um from the federal budget to the arts a couple of years ago, we are seeing a mass exodus from the arts and a lot of people are defecting for, um, you know, design jobs, for um, teaching jobs, for, for other jobs and what, and we're going to really suffer as a society from, from that 
um, situation. It, it, I think it highlights just how bad the working conditions and pay rates are artists can be if people are leaving art to go to teaching, which is mm. hardly <laughs> yeah. a, 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 a career. I have enormous respect for teachers. They are not paid enough for the work that They're they not. do. They're often enormous amounts of unpaid overtime and mm. using their own incomes again for supplies and so forth. So, mm. But, yeah, if teaching is looking good for artists, something <laughs> is wrong. If you want to uh, check out Arts Log, which is the new project that's been that we're talking about. It's a website that's been commissioned for State of the Union at the Ian Potter Museum of Art at the University of Melbourne. The exhibition, which you may have heard about on Breakfasters last week, is on now until the 28th of October and is supported by the Victorian Government through Creative Victoria. The website is www.artslog.com and you can read both the good and the bad about working in the arts, as Gabrielle has been telling us. Stories submitted by artists living and working in Australia. Look, a, a final question for you. Have you got lawyers checking some of these stories before they go up? Because I, I was thinking mm. about the uh, the risk of libel from some of the stories. Well, the, I mean, there is that risk and we've had informal advice, um, but we are acting as a conduit for these stories. We don't um, we, we edit the stories for kind of grammatical clarity, but we don't independently verify them. And these stories are a collection of memories and experiences um, and thoughts from one person's point of view. And we certainly do, um, we're open to people um, contacting us if they have a, another side to a story. Um, but yeah, we, we don't... Um, we don't verify or stand by those stories uh, personally, but it's it's about providing that platform for other people to tell their stories. That platform, as we said, is www.artslog.com, uh, which uh, and I've been chatting with Gabrielle. Vietri from the Artist Subcommittee talking to us about the work. So check on, uh, check, jump online, check out the stories and if you're an artist, add your own. Artslog.com is the website. Gabrielle, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you, Richard. Now, though, I'm joined in the studio by Philippa Bateman, who's the producer of a new work now showing at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image, ACME. Uh, artist Zanny Begg uh, has created The Beehive, Who Killed Juanita Nielsen. It's uh, an art bank and ACME commission, and it riffs off the disappearance and assumed murder of Juanita Nielsen, who was, amongst other things, an activist in Sydney who was kind of fighting the the development of King's Cross. Uh, Her story has since been dramatised on film and it's now uh, been explored again by Zanny Begg in The Beehive, who killed Juanita Nielsen. Uh, Philippa, tell us a little bit more about the work. Why did Zanny kind of choose uh, this particular crime and this particular unsolved murder to explore in this commission? I think if you live in Sydney and even if you don't live in Sydney, um, Juanita Nielsen was a very um, mysterious and kind of important person in the city because her disappearance, I mean, she was a style icon, an activist, an heiress. Um, Her fight against the developers in Victoria Street was made very public, of course, by her disappearance. And Zanny, I think both Juanita as a person was someone who fascinated her, but she also represented 
um, a contemporary sort of dialogue with the past and the present about cities and about what we're going through now, which is gentrification, um, the kinds of cleansing of the inner city, particularly of Sydney, of artists, low-income workers, the elderly, the poor, um, all of whom Juanita actually fought for and to stay in that city. So this isn't a sort of a historical investigative documentary about the death and murder of Juanita. It's also a contemporary examination of all those themes and about corruption and sex work and nonconformist lifestyles. And so it... It involved so many kind of ideas that Zanny, who's an artist, but she's also an activist, was interested in. One of the things that intrigues me from what I've uh, read and heard about the work, I haven't had a chance to see it yet, uh, is that because there are so many versions of the truth about yes. Juanita Nielsen, the, the work that has been created reflects that uh, by yeah. almost randomly showing and throwing up different kind of permutations of the story through different clips which are, have been kind of assembled. So you could go and see this work multiple times and never see the same work. That's true. What um, the programmer and coder, who's Andy Nicholson, he... Um, created the algorithm. But the thing, it's quite hard for people to understand if they actually haven't seen it. So I first saw Zanny's work, City of Ladies, which was at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Sydney last year. And I was completely fascinated by it. And it had a similar algorithmic treatment, um, but it was about um, Joan of Arc. But this She's, this algorithm is what orders the narrative. But in fact, I mean, it combines documentary and drama um, and also performance. So the story is a linear story in its examination of the person, but how you experience it is non-linear. You can, you can see the same parts of the film over and over again, but you might see a four-minute version, a 20-minute version, a 30-minute version, um, and it's up to you. Cool. Yeah. In terms then of producing this, tell us a, a little bit more about your role in facilitating the work. Because uh, when we think of a producer in the theatre world, for example, it's the person who's raising the money to get the show on. Sure. Or, uh, but uh, in the film world, a producer can serve a similar role, but you're also a facilitator and a fixer and look, kind of that's a, true. a problem solver. I'm a creative producer, which is slightly different. So, look, um, the work had already been commissioned by Acme and Art Bank. Um, and Zanny received that commission as the artist, and then Zanny approached me. Um, I was completely thrilled to be able to... Um, it's very hard to get funding for these kind of projects. It's really hard to get funding for bold, innovative, different kind of work. Um, and even though this is, this is a Sydney story, it's completely ironic that came out of Melbourne in terms of the funding. Um, it's... And, and I'm, I just have to say I'm completely grateful to Acme and Art Bank because this wouldn't actually exist without them and without their kind of criteria for funding. So, in fact, I can't take the credit for raising the funds. Um, but I work with Zanny really as a creative collaborator. I, as a producer, even as a creative producer, you're a fixer, you are a facilitator for the vision, you back the director's vision and you try and give them what they need to realise that vision. 
you know, this was an ultra low budget production. We had about 26 cast. We had a very small, very talented crew. Um, we shot about a hundred, probably an hour and 20 minutes worth of material in 10 days. I'm a feature film producer by trade and a documentary uh, producer. And I can honestly say I've never, ever attempted anything like this. And I may never do it again. <laughs> um, having said that, it was one of the best producing experiences of my life. I have a great relationship with Zanny, And I really believed in her work and her vision. And that makes it easy. It's really difficult as a producer if you're actually not in love with the work. And to be honest, I was kind of her number one fan and in love with it, so it was easy. Um, but look, you have to do everything. I mean, I raised some additional funds, you know, you sweet talk people, you do deals, but really the most important thing is to honour the sort of creative integrity and spirit of the project. Um, but that can't happen without funding. So totally grateful to Acme and Art Bank. Yeah. Now, given your background as a as uh, from the documentary world, obviously yeah. there are documentary elements to uh, this work, the Beehive Who Killed Juanita Nielsen. Uh, it's an unsolved case. Mm -hmm. uh, the sheer fact that it happened at all is, in some ways, astounding. Shocking. <laughs> yeah, and the fact that it, it has not been solved. We're talking also about shocking. A, a woman who stood up to developers and was and power. Really, yeah, yeah. power, the yeah. and in a what at the time was a, a pretty corrupt state and city. Not even pretty, like astoundingly corrupt. I mean, basically, the thing that the big picture is that in um, the late sixties, the Askin government was elected. They were a Liberal government, and they changed the development laws um, within New South Wales, particularly within the city of Sydney. And it basically encouraged and allowed developers who wanted to um, build high rise and speculate and make vast profits. Um, it gave them the kind of go-card to do that. Frank Tiemann, who was the developer who um, basically was behind the Victoria Point development, which Juanita was opposing, was just one of many. But he was a particularly controversial one because he constantly boasted about his connections with the police and with the Askin government. She was fearless in taking on um, that power. And it wasn't just the developer, it was the government and it was the police. And she also aligned herself um, with the BLF, the Builders Labour Federation, who put the green bands um, and introduced the green bands, which is basically responsible for saving inner city Sydney, well, saving the rocks, the rocks yeah. Surrey Hills, Victoria Street, I mean, pretty much, I mean, Paddington, all of it, which are now highly affluent inner city suburbs that really millionaires can only afford to live in. So, and she was an heiress, which is kind of even, and she was a 38 year old woman, she was single. She ran her own magazine, Now Magazine. She made it from her living room. Um, she was ahead of her time. She was kind of into, she was, you know, a precursor to Instagram in a way, but in print. Um, she wrote as she spoke, which is a very contemporary uh, form of journalism in a way. So she was, she was astounding. She was a great person. And the reason, I mean, there was a coronial inquiry and there was also um, a parliamentary inquiry into corruption. And she was, you know, they knew she disappeared, believed murdered, but basically all the perpetrators, no one spoke. And no one spoke because everyone was terrified, <laughs> probably of being knocked off. 
The the case has been the subject of uh, films before, fictionalised films. Yes, uh, a couple uh, of feature the films. The Killing of Angel Street, yes. Heat Wave. Yes. Um, and now, again, as we've said, being kind of re-explored by Zanny Begg in this work, The Beehive, Who Killed Juanita Nielsen, which is showing at ACME, the Australian Centre for the Moving Image, on now until Sunday the 4th of November. And you can get more info at acme.net.au forward slash beehive. Philippa, as the producer of this work, you're clearly passionate about it. Mm. Um, it's, as you said, it's a Sydney story, but it clearly has universal relevance. It's about New York. It's about London. It's about Melbourne. I mean, I think that everyone... Um, I mean, I think a lot of inner cities are going through this right now. I mean, a lot of it, we have uh, multiple Juanitas in the film, um, the millennial generation, the boomer generation, Generation X. I mean, people are talking about how difficult it is to actually live in the inner city and, you know, afford it. This is gentrification and housing justice is, I think, totally universal urban experience (laughs) right now. The film slash visual artwork, because it's it's a bit of both. It's a non-linear experimental documentary. Okay, there we go. Uh, as we said, showing at ACME until Sunday the 4th of November, acme.net.au forward slash beehive for more information. I've been chatting with, with uh, the producer of The Beehive who killed Juanita Nielsen, Philippa Bateman. Philippa, thanks so much for joining Thank us. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, my final guests for the morning have joined me in the studio to chat about Hallowed Ground, uh, a new Australian work uh, being staged at the La Mama Courthouse Theatre uh, from the 8th to the 19th of August. And as always, when I talk about La Mama on the program, just a quick disclaimer, I'm on the La Mama Committee of Management as a volunteer. I don't benefit financially from promoting La Mama's shows uh, on this particular show, but I always feel it's a conflict of interest. I should just acknowledge it straight out. Joining me in the studio, Helen Hopkins and Carolyn Bock. Welcome Hi, to you both. Hi, Thank Richard. you. So this is uh, a new work, uh, as it we said, is. Hallowed Ground, uh, and it's looking at the experiences of women in wartime, but looking specifically at the experiences of nurses and of doctors. Actually, not nurses, just, just doctors. doctors. So, yes, doctors. Yeah, we had previously written a play about World War I that nurses. Was, <laughs> that's yeah, right. That's yeah. But this one is just about doctors over the the last hundred years. It actually had its initial birth at La Mama as well in the exploration season. So we had a creative development there, which was on for three nights in 2016. And it's now been developed into a full production, which is fantastic. And uh, we just took it to the Australian War Memorial in Canberra last week. And we uh, performed to some serving military um, medicine specialists. So that was slightly scary, but very exciting. Wasn't yes, it, yeah. And, and so um, rewarding to afterwards to have those women come up to us and say, you know, basically say that, yes, that's our experience. And thanks for telling really our thanks story. for telling our yeah. stories. It doesn't get any better than that, I have to say. Yeah, um, yeah pretty great. Uh, So So, one of the things that intrigues me uh, from Mm -hmm. what I've read about this work, obviously I haven't seen a production of it yet because it doesn't open until next week, but you're telling it across different time periods. Yes, that's right. Talk to us about that. Yes, well, the the beautiful world of interpretive theatre allows the four women 
uh, to talk to each other, converse across a century. So they comment on each other's stories. Essentially, the play is constructed around four monologues. Um, but then part of our development process with our director, Catherine Hill, has been able to, how, how would we interject? So a lot of that's been, um, you know, developed in the rehearsal room. Mm. What would they ask each other? How are they going to react to those moments? Because they're different experiences, of course. Um, yeah, there's similarities uh, yeah, and differences. Similar, so, yes, that's you know, right. we start off in World War One, and, you know, the Australian Army didn't want women doctors, but 25 or so women went anyway, and they served with something called the Scottish Women's Hospital, which was set up by um, suffragette funds. Um, and their, their story, you know, the, the circumstances that they served in, which was the same for a lot of World War I um, medical staff, were, were quite um, confronting, I guess. And then we move, you know, through World War II. We also touch on the Vietnam War. We have one of our characters who comes to Australia as a child, as a refugee from Vietnam. And then she uh, subsidises her medical degree by joining the army, not thinking she's going to serve anywhere. And she ends up in Iraq with flashbacks to her experience as a child in Vietnam. And then we have our modern doctor as well, who who's basically looking back on the women that have they've gone before her and reflecting on their experience. So yeah, and as Caro said, we talk across those hundred years, which is yeah something that only theatre can do. <laughs> yeah, it's one of the things that uh, the production that I saw last year at 45 downstairs of Angels in America. Uh, there's a wonderful scene in that where, again, it's it's playing with drama. You can have two characters on stage, but they're in different places and yep. different times. Yes. And yeah. suddenly they can start talking to each other and, yep. and kind of that awareness of the magic of theatre and something that it can be done. How conscious were you when you started to develop the work, uh, Carolyn, that, that the women would talk across time, for example, or did that really only come in the exploration, mm. in the development? Yes, well, we knew we wanted them to talk across time, but we hadn't, we, we weren't quite sure. We started with the four independent stories and, and then found moments where they can would converge. So there were a few, for example, the World War One story, she has a companion, Joe. Joe has become sort of more fully realised, I suppose, in this development. Mm. And then just talking, yeah, about their voices across time, a lot of it in the room, but Helen and I certainly benefited from that first uh, exploration series at La Mama because that, the feedback was that the moments that were really powerful and strong was where the women started to have a chat to each other. Yeah. Um, so that was really developed later on so yeah it's it's a very exciting <laughs> we're so excited we're sort of exhausted too as all theatre makers are a week out from opening and we're just so excited to finally bumping it bump it into the theatre on mm. Sunday yeah. that's where all those beautiful elements that we haven't had before of Meg White's gorgeous set design Richard Varbury doing lighting and yeah. having all of those elements come together so that's that's the next incarnation of it. So we're really excited about that. Yeah. Now the earlier work that mm. uh, we we mentioned the the piece uh, the girls in grey about yes. the experiences of nurses uh, in war that after its initial kind of kind of run yeah. uh, at La Mama Explorations ended up touring nationally it did, and yeah. touring it did. regionally yeah. as well and it's got a further life yet I believe. Yeah. Oh, so lovely. A, a youth theatre company in Beanley in Queensland actually approached us and asked if they could have the rights to do our show and they are a youth theatre company and they were all under the age of 18, which we thought was just fantastic yeah. because of the youth, of course, of the boys that went in the First World War and, uh, that's, and they said to us, we've learnt so much from the play about the nursing experience in World War One, So it's had this lovely life. Yeah. And we believe a few of them are 
um, thinking of coming down to see this one. So that's oh, yeah. really lovely yeah. that's had that yeah. afterlife. And we already yeah. have a regional tour for this one next year yes. as well. So um, Rav's taken it on and we've got a, what a, a three-week regional tour around Victoria next year. So, Fantastic. Yeah. So I'm intrigued, though, one play about nurses, now doctors. <laughs> kind of, where does this fascination for the experiences of, of women in wartime and in particular women who are kind of... Uh, kind of caring for, like, there's already the emotional labour that women do all their Mm. lives about caring for men, kind of, uh, and that's just exaggerated and amplified for female doctors and female uh, nurses in wartime. Why this fascination that's now playing across two plays? Well, we didn't (laughs) have that fascination necessarily originally. With with Girls in Grey... um, my, my sister had written an Anzac Day speech for a state member of parliament based around the World War I nurses. And when Carolyn and I read it, we were quite shocked that we didn't know their story. Now, this was before Anzac Girls and before the story sort of came into public consciousness. And now most most people know that story. But it was the same with this. We, ne- we didn't want to set out to write another military story or another medical story, but we this, this story of the doctors really fell into our lap. And what what makes us write the play is the fact that we don't know these stories and that's the same with so many women's stories they're, they're kind of it's hidden history a little bit and that's what inspires us more than more than it being military or medical it's, yeah, it's, it's the, the women inside the uniform yeah that really make well that make the stories and it's their lived experience as well yeah you can't go past it really once you've read it to be honest. <laughs> Which then begs the question, how much of that lived experience do you then have to be, as writers and as actors, mm. be slavishly faithful to, as opposed to having the freedom to interpret it dramatically, artistically, narratively? Yes, sure. That's I, a really interesting question. Yeah, it has been. It's been look, it's been a challenge. We've, in terms of the authenticity of the stories, we've had a fantastic um, mentor and advocate, Susan Nehouse, who wrote this book, Not For Glory, that also kind of one way or another fell into our lap. Um, she herself had a 20 five-year career within the ADF and um, served in many different places. And she has been across the drafts um, from pretty much from 2016, really, hasn't she? So just advising here and there or about accuracies and things. But Um, some of it, I suppose, like the the World War I doctor who has what they called then a lifelong companion. Yes. They were basically a lesbian couple. you know, from from a modern point of view, that story is really interesting. You know, to be able to bring that to life and to honour that that story, I think, is really important. Um, and yeah, so so we've got to bring our own modern sensibilities to bringing that to life. I think, um, but but it just feels like, in particular, that story felt like it was really important to yeah. choose. And the other one was, I suppose, with how to represent the Vietnam yeah um, experience was something that. We sort of we decided when we read Dr. Tam Tran's story, um, we just went that that's it. We have to. This is the mm. way we include that conflict through the eyes of a child and her exodus from Saigon, 1976 here. And that's that's this is where the interpretive, beautiful theatrical comes yeah. into play. We just went a right way and wrote that childhood experience. Uh, in a quite a lyrical way, in an interpretive way, in a theatrical way, because we knew above all what we're creating is a piece of theatre. Mm. So to, to keep in mind having all those creative elements at our disposal. So, yeah, the dream sequences are very beautiful. They're all in Vietnamese. Chi Nguyen, who plays Tam, um, very kindly translated it all from English into Vietnamese. So, yeah, it's a nice element, nice yeah. touch. 
And as you said, then set design by Meg White, yes. lighting design by Richard Vabra, whose work I, I absolutely love. Oh, um, sound design by A. Pogos and uh, Steph Young as stage manager. Yep. Yes. So, and shout out to the stage manager because yeah. the, the creative team often get all the limelight yeah. and then the, the poor SM is, is backstage <laughs> yeah. kind of getting people Running on the and show. off. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. right. Yes, yes. Did we mention Catherine Hill, our director? No, because we I have to. So. Because yes. she's been extraordinary in the room. Yeah. Not to take anything away from the stage manager, but <laughs> the director really does, you know, she runs the Runs ship. the ship and yeah. unites all the different aspects Absolutely. of the production. Absolutely. Now, given that you are the co-producers, co-writers mm. and are performing in the work as well, <laughs> what's the relationship like with uh, Catherine Hill, the director? Because to uh, uh, there obviously there comes a point where you have to let go of the material yes, and yeah. give the director control, yes. which when it's your project on so many levels yep. must be... Is it challenging to be able to let go or do you get to I find it quite easy once I'm in the room as an actor to to step back and let Catherine have that responsibility and and I have worked with her before and I really trust her vision. There will be occasional moments where we'll feel quite strongly about a particular line or word mm. that, and and we'll we'll come up with that. Yeah. But but stepping back once you're in the room as an actor I find I find quite easy to yeah. do. Do you? Yeah, yeah. I, 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 yeah, I have a little bit more of a challenge of stepping away as one of the co-writers, and but Catherine was really supportive of that. She made the room a very um, sort of organic place. So if there were things that we wanted to change on the fly, just because they start to sound, and also to the other actors bring such a massive, you know. Um, well, their own interpretation into the room and so yeah. suddenly you go, oh, we've got this lovely, organic, malleable thing that we can still keep refining and Catherine's been so supportive of that. Mm. I have tried to take my hat off now. <laughs> well, the, uh, new, the, la the yes. last new scene we only put in, yeah. what, couple three of weeks, weeks ago? ago or yeah, a new scene yes. dropped in. Yeah, We just stumbled across this little diamond of research thought, that we thought, ah, that's yeah. got to go in. And <laughs> Catherine was great and she went, let's let's run it, let's try it. And then we went, yep, yeah, no, it'll, it'll yeah. work. So, yeah. yeah. Oh, yes. Hallowed Ground is the play that we're discussing, uh, co-written by Helen Hopkins and Carolyn Bock. They're also performing in the work uh, along with Jean Goodwin and Jean Ewan. It's on from the 8th to the 19th of August at the La Mama Courthouse Theatre, 349 Drummond Street, Carlton. Uh, and uh, you can book by calling 9347 6948 or jumping online www.lamama.com.au and... As I'm sure you know, the uh, original La Mama Theatre burnt down earlier this year. It will be rebuilt. All those shows that should be at La Mama will now be in Trades Hall. That's it. Uh, but all the shows at the courthouse are running as normal. That's so, right. Uh, yeah. yeah. So uh, the details again, uh, hallowed ground from the 8th to the 19th of August, Wednesdays at 6.30pm, Tuesdays, Thursdays, uh, sorry, uh, Thursdays, Fridays, Saturdays, 7.30pm, Sundays at 4pm. So uh, book at lamama.com.au if you want to go and check it out, a play about the experiences of women doctors in war. Thank you so much, both of you. Thanks, Thanks so much for coming in. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.